which is part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. I thank you for having me today. And uh, i just like to start in prayer, if you will, because I like to teach, but the Holy Spirit is the teacher. So if you would join with me. Father, Holy Spirit, our Lord Jesus, we just praise you all. And, and Lord, as we seek you this morning to teach us, I just want to humbly acknowledge that. It's your name that's to be lifted. And you are the one to receive the glory, and you are the one to give the direction. But I ask humbly that you would use your servant for it, that your spirit, Holy Spirit, you would speak through me as your instrument, and that you would have every heart, every eye that's open to see, every heart that's open, every ear that's open to hear, that you would speak to them in, in their own way like only you can, beyond what I might say, beyond what word might be read. You speak, and I ask you to do that. And we ask it not because we are worthy, but you have counted us worthy in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, in the ancient world... Alliances were a very important thing because it was a dangerous place. There weren't any central governments to hold down crime or anywhere you went, you kind of needed to carry, be packing, you know, something. Whatever the weapon of choice was, you needed to be able to defend yourself. And lots of people created alliances. As you go to Genesis chapter 14 and 15, and I'm going to pick out of there, but uh, just kind of tell the story of what's going on there. You see some alliances that have been formed between uh, there are four kings out uh, kind of to the east of Jerusalem, about 150 miles, 200 miles out that way, the king of Edom, whose name is, if I can pronounce it correctly, Chedorlaomer, or Amir, Chedorlaomer. Now, I'm going to call him Cheddar, okay? Is that all right with you? It's easier for me to pronounce Cheddar. So there's an alliance that Cheddar has with three other kings. And uh, I, won't, I won't talk about those. You can read those. But just know that he is the central figure in this alliance and that he has made this alliance with the five kings in what is known in the ancient world as the Valley of Sedim. The Valley of Sedim is basically the Dead Sea area now where Sodom and Gomorrah and Zoar, which are the most famous, but there are two other small city-states in that area that have gathered together in an alliance themselves. But Cheddar has enough muscle that he has put, he's kind of like a Chicago insurance salesman, right, who went to a new shopkeeper and he says, I'm here to offer you some insurance. The guy says, well, I already have insurance. Well, this is an insurance of a different kind. Well, what kind of protection are you offering? Protection from me, right? That doesn't cover, huh? You didn't get that? All right. Hello. That's about as good as I do humor-wise, okay? Y'all have to make up the jokes for yourself then, the punchlines for yourself. Anyway, Cheddar comes up and he offers these five kings this alliance and they serve him for 12 years. But then, then this other alliance that Cheddar has with these other four kings, or these other three kings, making, I know it's confusing here, but Cheddar's alliance versus Sodom Gomorrah alliance, or the Valley alliance, 
they come into conflict because of the rebellion. And Abram, the Hebrew, who later on we come to know as Abraham, who has a wife who becomes known as Sarah, and they're the father of the Hebrew nation. He's the father of the Hebrew nation in which God chooses this people unto himself. And he's a friend of God, according to scriptures later on. And anyway, he is in an alliance with a couple of individuals within the Sodom Valley alliance, so to speak, right? He's in an alliance with those guys. Now, I want you to try to just see all of this working because these alliances are formed for protection. But in the, in the conflict, the alliance of the valley flees. The, the kings of Sodom, Gomorrah, Zoar, they're all fleeing into the tar pit area. And it says in uh, Genesis 14.10, Now the valley of Sedim was full of asphalt pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell there, and the remainder fled to the mountains. And as they're fleeing away, some are losing their lives, falling into the tar pit, or uh, I suppose that they were being pursued there as well. And in any way, somebody escapes of the men, and you can read that, who were in Genesis 14:13 says, The one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the terebinth trees of Memory, the Mamorite. So Memory is in alliance with Abram, brother of Eschol and brother of Anir, and they were allies with Abram. So there's this little mini alliance going on, and they come to Abram and they say, it's been sacked, it's all fallen apart. They just ran. Nobody stood up to them. They fled for their own lives. And he, whoa, 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 what's, what, what are you talking about? He said, Lot, your brother's son has been captured by this king alliance and he and his wife and his children have all been taken off and all the women and some of the men and all of the livestock and all of the gold and silver and everything that we own has been taken away. And Abram puts together 318 of his men. I call them the 318 ninja warriors of Abram. Because he pursues this alliance and overtakes them in the night. About 75 miles north of the Dead Sea up there. He overtakes them in the night and he takes back everything they had taken. He goes to war with them. I don't know what his strategy was, but his men were some sure enough warriors. And he goes in and he takes them back. And he brings them back to the valley. And as he's, he's approaching there, there are a lot of things that happen. And his encounter with a, a king and a priest named Melchizedek but the one that's interesting here, Abram, because he has an alliance with Mamre and, and his kinfolk, he goes and takes everything and brings it back. But the king of Sodom meets him and he says, hey, look, just give us back the people. You keep everything else. And it just appears that Abram's being generous. No, I'm not going to take anything. I'm humble. I want God to be my God and not you be able to say that you made Abram's name but really what is going on here, Sodom, the king of Sodom is saying, hey, how about a little alliance between us? And Abram's thinking, yeah, that didn't work out too good for the other guys. You all fled when it came time for battle. Why would I want an alliance with you? But it's a dilemma for Abram, right? He had an alliance that didn't work out too good for him either. He ended up having to be with 318 men. There were these thousands of 
supposedly soldiers who fled in the face of battle. And Abram had to take 318, 319 counting him, men to battle and win. And he did. And he's thinking, well, if they can't do what 318 of my guys can do, why do I want an alliance with them? But it leaves him wide open to what's going on in the world around him. It leaves him, and I'm thinking, it doesn't say so, but if I'm Abram, you know what I'm thinking about? I have just ticked off a big horde of raiding soldiers. They come around every so often and collect taxes and plunder and kill who they want to, and I have just made enemies with this group of guys. Where can I find an alliance that can help me with those guys when they come back? And the wonderful thing that we hear, and I'm going to skip in case you go to uh, this slide six there, that the Lord is, is reading the thoughts and ideas of Abram, and he says to Abram in a vision, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. Now, we've read that. I read that for just years, decades. I would read over that and go, well, that's nice that the Lord comes to, to Abram. How does it, why is Abram afraid? Until I get back with 14, Genesis 14, and begin to think, well, I would be under those circumstances. I stuck my neck out. I have no alliances that will hold and help me. Where am I going to get an alliance from? And God says that to Abram, and Abram responds, and he says, well, what will you give me? Now, that's a strange question. If you're looking in verse 2, I don't have it, but if what will you give me? And it doesn't say this right after that, but the question infers, what will you give me as a pledge to say to me, you're in this alliance with me. Now, I'm going to give you another name for alliance that you might be more familiar with from a biblical term, and that term is covenant. It's called covenant. And you studied it and know that the term covenant means cutting. It's all about bloodshed. But really, it's not just all about bloodshed. It's not just all about cutting. What it is, it's all about forming an alliance. Right? Get this? And it's a strange way to form an alliance. Abram says, what will you give me? By the way, I don't have any children. He's kind of setting God up for what he wants from God, right? By the way, I have no children. I have no one to pass on my wealth to, no one to continue in alliance with you down the road, God. I have no children. And he had received a promise from God already, right? That he would have children and it hasn't come to pass. So God says, okay, let's enter an alliance. Let's enter this alliance formally. And he says, I want you to go get a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, and two pigeons and two turtle doves. And Abram knew what to do with them. God didn't have to instruct him because this is... The ceremony that happens, see, this is the ceremony that happens when in the ancient world you enter into an alliance. And he cuts up the big animals. 
and he lays the halves and creates an aisle, so to speak, almost like a wedding, except it's not going to smell good. It's almost like a wedding. He creates an aisle where these animals are laid out. He doesn't cut the birds in two. He just spreads them apart. And what would happen is when they would enter this covenant agreement, the the two parties entering the covenant agreement would walk between them. And there would be some definition to the agreement. I'm going to, I might pay a surtax to you for the agreement. Uh, You might provide this kind. But the, the ultimate idea here is you are no longer separate. You are now my family. You're family with me. And if something happens to you, it happens to me. If something happens to me, I expect that it happens to you. And I expect you will be there for me no matter how threatening to your life or your livelihood, how expensive or, or profitable it might be, you will be there for me, I will be there for you, and that is the commitment that Abram is expecting is about to be made as they pass between those. Now, they would utter this vow as they pass between these animals. May what has happened to these beasts happen to me if I do not uphold the nature of this agreement. Wow. May what has happened, I'm sorry, I'm just bumping that mic. Drop it down a little bit. I'm going to drop my mic down. Let's see if that helps. All right. May what has happened or been done to these beast be done to me if I do not uphold the nature of this agreement, of this alliance. Now I want to fast forward a few years. There's a lot that could be said here, but those that it would take a while to say it. But I want to fast forward a few years, a few thousand years almost, and, and to an upper room the night Jesus is betrayed. And he has told the disciples, I have been waiting for a long time to observe the Passover with you. And in the time that he is observing the Passover, he takes the bread and he breaks it and he hands it out and he says, this is my body offered for you. This is the new what? Covenant. Do you get what Jesus just said? I'm ready to enter a covenant with you. Okay? I'm creating this aisle for you. And we walk down an aisle sometimes to say, we say we walk down an aisle to do what? To enter a covenant with Jesus, we call it. Married? Sometimes we call it getting saved. Right? We call it that. Accepting Jesus, being forgiven of our sins, we call it that. But what we're saying is we're entering a covenant with you, Lord Jesus. And may what has happened to your body happen to me if I do not keep the nature of this agreement. That's not the prayer you prayed, is it? If you sign a contract without reading it, what happens? You're still bound to it, right? 
I don't know how deep that goes with Jesus, but when you come to Jesus, I, you know, I came as a young man, a boy. I didn't know a lot at that point in time. I, I went to a church, what at that time believed that you could fall from grace, lose your salvation, so to speak. And, and then God sent me as a missionary to the Baptist, right? But I had changed my understanding of that because I understood what it meant to be born again, to become a son of God in that regard. And that changed my thought and my attitude about that. But, I, but that helps me to realize it's not what you know when you come to Jesus. It's who you know or who you come to know in coming to Jesus. I didn't know anything about doctrine as a boy. All I knew is that the preacher said God loved me and wanted me to be his child. And I responded to that and he showed me how to pray to express my faith and trust in Jesus and him dying on the cross, rising from the dead, raising from the dead, and, and asking him to forgive my sins and be my Savior. And at that point in time, God gave me the gift of the Holy Spirit to confirm that covenant. And all he wanted in return was me, my life, my commitment to the alliance, right? My commitment to the alliance. Now, I want to go back a couple of weeks when I was here last. And uh, Pastor Darrell was preaching out of 1 John. I told him, I said, I want to hit on what you said and just reinforce what you said with this because this is exactly what John is talking about in 1 John chapter 1 when he says, I, will, I write these things to you so that you can understand basically this, understand the nature of the covenant. Or he calls it what? The nature of fellowship. It's the same thing as alliance, the same thing as covenant. It's not the words don't mean exactly the same thing. Koinia, which is the word for fellowship, means good and good. But what it really means is a dedication to get deeper and deeper, stronger and stronger, more and more committed more and more attached, more and more a part of the trust or the family of the people who are around you and the Father who has created this trust together with you. When you go to Acts chapter 2, verse 42 and following, it says that the new disciples were devoted, daily devoted to, and it lists several things, and one of those is fellowship. It's not, in another place he says breaking the bread. Is he repeating himself? Because we've come to think of fellowship as getting around a table and having a meal and laughing a little bit and talking and, and going home. Well, wasn't it good to have fellowship today? But I think what happens in fellowship is that you are playing out the commitment that you are now my family. And whatever you need, I'm here to help you with. And I know that whatever I need, you're there to help me with. But it's not just coming together to eat a meal. It's coming together to find out what we need. 
And it's not just coming together. It's going out. Do you know anybody who may have missed recently that's struggling, that needs a brother or sister or a group to go and say, I heard you had a need and we're your family. Whatever that need may be, it might not be the need they want you to fulfill. Sometimes what people need is not what they want, right? I've been told that, especially when I was a kid. You need this, but I don't want that. It's the same thing as this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. You've heard that, huh? John said, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sins. And I want you to hear what he's saying. Hey, 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 you cannot be in fellowship with me and consort with the enemy. You're not in fellowship with me if you're still in fellowship with the enemy. Don't claim that. Now, if you've been doing that, I've got good news for you. Later on, what he says is if you've sinned, If you have sinned and you've consorted with the enemy, but having been now forewarned, you realize that, you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Right? Thank God for that. Now, I I, I just want to spend a few more minutes. I've got a few scriptures that I just want to read through. Very little comment because they're really good at explaining the idea of fellowship. Fellowship is created sometimes just by forcing us to have fellowship by the things that happen around us. Sometimes we get lax on it, and whether God causes it or whether God allows it, He he drives us back together, and He drives us back to Him, right? And he reminds us, Philippians chapter 2 is a good description of the mind of fellowship. And I want to read it. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, and here, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, Being of one accord, of one mind, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. That's fellowship. That's what it means. Looking out for the interest of others over your own interest trying to remember who said it now 
I can't. But we used this theme a lot in the circles uh, of the pastors that I fellowship with at Phoenix. Let's outdo each other in love. Let's see if we can just outdo each other. Not for the pride of it. Not so I can say, ha, I'm better than you. But just pick someone and see if you can outdo them in loving. Loving them. There is a maturing of fellowship that takes place. But what things were gained to me, Paul says this in chapter 3 of Philippians, what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Now, really pay attention to this, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings. That is just an odd idea to me. But when I said he uses things to drive us back together, and to create a stronger bond, and to alert us to each other's needs, and to call us back to dependency on Him, really, for meeting those needs. You know, I, I can tell you, I work out of town a lot. And I show up, I, I usually dra- travel on Monday. I get down to my office. My office is in Tampa, Florida. And I get down to the area of my office, and I, I drop by a BP, and I get out of the car, and I notice already there's this lady just sobbing in tears and this man comes walking out and he's trying to console her and there's a little bit of I I think wow did they get in an argument but as soon as I get out of the car and and I wear a a coat and tie to work this this man comes up to me and he flips open his wallet he flips open his wallet and he's got this VA card in his wallet he's a veteran combat veteran from Iraq and he's homeless, and his wife is homeless. Now, they're not the dirty homeless guy. They're really, you can tr- they're trying. You see it. Show me a picture of a couple of kids they have. And they have an appointment with the VA about getting an apartment, a Section 8 apartment, housing that's going to help them. And I am sorry, but I have been in that car for a long time. And I got to go, you know. And I just say, I'll be right back, but not now. And I go in, and as I'm going, taking care of business, God speaks to me in an odd place, you know. But he says, how much you got in your wallet? Now, I know God knows how much I have in my wallet. I've got $40 cash in my wallet. I usually don't spend much cash. And he says, give it to him. And I'm thinking... You know, $40 to these guys is a lot of money, God. And when I get out, I hand a 20 to him. 
and they are just so appreciative, and she just bawls again, and they apologize for having to ask, and God is saying, how much did you have? I'll need 20 today, this week, sometime, God. I'm probably going to need 20. And he says, yeah, you could need a lot more. So I just slip back here and pull out my wallet, and I pass on in obedience finally, and and not forced obedience, but, you know, what I'm confessing to you is is that I'm not always mature and obedient, doing what God wants me to do. And sometimes he has to remind me that he has maturing ways. Not to be mean, but just to let me, so I will come in closer fellowship with him. I'm always praying to him, please help me to, as in heaven, so on earth, help me to, your will be done in my life on heaven, just as when you speak to an angel, go do this, I want to be in a place I can hear and go do what you tell tell me to do. And here all he's telling me to do is reach in my wallet. But I'm not always that mature. He tells Paul to write this for us in 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians. And Paul just, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, And God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble. With the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God for this, for as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Now, if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation, and our hope for you is steadfast because we know that as you are partakers of the suffering, also you will partake of the consolation. The things that happen to us that that he allows or he causes, and, and I don't mean to be trite with this, analysis of it, what he's saying. I'm not really analyzing it. I'm just saying what we learn through our sufferings are valuable for us. What we learn through sometimes our disciplines are valuable for us. And not only becoming Christ-like and being good Christians in this world, but it's valuable for us to pass it on in relationships to encourage others, to just sit beside someone who is unconsolable at the moment when there are no words to say, or, or for us, whenever that's happening to us, to have that in my mind that I can't expect that much, but at the same time I appreciate the effort and I can learn that later on down the road, what I'm experiencing, I can pass on to someone else. Now, sometimes I don't like my lessons. Something happened to me about uh, nine years ago. I'm not, I, I won't even talk about it, but when it happened, I just screamed at God. 
I can't even, I would not, I'd be embarrassed to tell you what my prayer sounded like at that moment. And you know, God didn't strike me down. He listened. And when I was done, I'd like to say he comforted me at that moment, but he just let me cry. And here I stand today. I lived through it. And I can tell you that God is faithful and will get you through it. He didn't deliver me from it. I still had to go through it. But you know what I've done since then when it's happened to other people? I've said, I feel your pain. I won't tell you I know how you feel, but I feel your pain. And I know it's real. And I can comfort that by which I have been comforted. I'm, I lied to you, didn't you? I'm talking a lot more than I said I would about these things. The final one is the mission of fellowship. And this comes from Paul out of Ephesians chapter 4, 15 and 16. But speaking the truth in love, the body he's talking about may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, now listen to this description, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies. Give me a one-word definition for that. Starts with an F. Thank you. <laughs> That's fellowship described. According to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. That's fellowship. Toward, and, and understand, the English translation of this idea is very telling as to what they understood this word to mean, this concept to be. Fellowship. Just divide those words out. Fellowship. Now try to figure out with a little bit of hint what that means. It just means fellows in a ship, right? We're all in this ship together. And we're working together to accomplish God's Goal, his direction, his purpose, what he wants us to do. Now, here's a here's a trick. Here's a trick. Not not really the right word to say, I guess, but here is here's a concept for you. We will not completely understand fellowship and be mature in fellowship until we are working for God's purposes in fellowship. What I'm saying is. I'll meddle. Here it is. I don't think Jesus died on the cross to get you to sit in that seat and listen to me preach today. Or anybody preach for that matter. I don't think that's God's purpose for you or for me or for the church. I don't see God's purposes at taking stock in how many people are attending church on Sunday. Because I have read the scripture to say that it's God's purpose that his people make disciples. 
not, a, not church attenders, but disciples. And you have to work together to do that. There's a process in Scripture for doing that. There's a relationship plan that God has for us to do that. But that we are all the under rowers of the ship, on cue, working together to see this purpose happen. And that, I believe, will restore. I think God pushes us back together for fellowship, but I really don't think until we we avail ourselves to God to be used of Him to accomplish this purpose of making disciples, of being disciples. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 4, verse 19, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. That's the process of discipleship. And, and I'm not going to disclose that right now because that's just too much. But what you see in that, what I always say is, what is a fisherman without fish? What is it? Someone who has no purpose or hasn't fulfilled their purpose. Someone who has unfinished business in their life. And with that, I push this right back into the fellowship idea is what is a Christian or a believer or a follower of Christ without disciples of their own? It's a person with unfinished business. Because we're supposed to be about the business of the kingdom. Not about the business of church, but about the business of the kingdom, which is disciples. Okay, let me just leave you with this. Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together, not against each other, but rowing, striving, working together for the faith of the gospel. Father, I pray that your spirit would take the words concepts, the scriptures, illustrations, even that which others have received today that I didn't have anything to do with. You'll take these and open up our hearts and minds to your will and obedience to your will. In your name we pray. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.